In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Every Sunday, we proclaim it in the Creed. From heaven, Christ will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We we proclaim it again in the Eucharist. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Good. Christ will come again. (laughs) I wonder what you really think about that statement. I imagine that there are two reactions represented here this morning. The first reaction is this. I don't believe it. You may be a committed Christian, or you may be still thinking about the Christian faith. Either way, you can take the idea of, coming, of Jesus coming to earth as a carpenter and as a teacher. That makes sense. But all this business of trumpets and angels and coming on clouds for a last judgment, the end of the world, this is just more than you can cope with. Your underlying assumption is that this is a myth or a fairy tale. This bears no relationship to how the world will actually end. If you feel like that this morning, I wish I could talk with you in more depth. What I can simply say is that this carpenter, this Jesus of Nazareth, who spoke so vividly and so consistently about his coming again. Listen to these verses from Matthew alone. 1627, For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay everyone for what he has done. 2430, Jesus describing the second coming. Men will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. 2531, Jesus describing the last judgment. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him. And then in chapter 26, beginning at verse 63. At his trial, Jesus is condemned for saying two things. First, for saying he is the Messiah. And second, that he will come from God on the clouds of heaven. If you have respect for the teaching of Jesus, and I know you do, you must come to terms with the fact that this is an important part of it. He did not just speak about peace on earth and loving your enemies. Time and time again, he said he would come back to judge the living and the dead. But I want to concentrate on a second reaction. I do believe it, but it doesn't affect me much. I would think that these are the feelings, if we are honest, with the majority of us here. We feel bound to accept what Jesus himself so clearly and repeatedly taught. But we just can't imagine it. It seems a long way off, and so it plays very little part in our thinking today. 
This, too, is a dangerous reaction. Jesus will make a genuine, real return in human history, and our understanding of it will affect the decisions we make in the here and now. So let's take a look and notice in particular three things. If you would like to follow along in your pew Bibles, we will begin at Matthew 25:31 on page 807. First, on Judgment Day, we will see Jesus as he really is. When the Son of Man comes in all his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his throne of glory. Now all will recognize Jesus for who he really is, the King and our Judge, who holds our eternal destiny in his hands. This will be the greatest spectacle for which two Christians all over the world have been preparing throughout the ages. This is the consummation of world history. Not only Jesus in all his glory, but also the whole heavenly world will be present. And all the nations will be gathered before him. All human beings of all time assembled in one place. Christians and non-Christians. A kind of cosmic Woodstock or Tiamen Square. And every knee will bow before his splendor and majesty. Second, as we look at that day, we discover that our destiny is decided as it really is. Jesus will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats at the left Notice that not only are we all included in the judgment, there are only two categories into which we can fall. We are either sheep or goats. We are either righteous or unrighteous. We either go to life or we go to death. Now, the striking thing about sheep and goats in the Middle East is that they can be very difficult to tell apart from one another. They can look the same. Not all sheep in the Middle East are white. Often they're dark-colored. They graze in the same flock, in the same places. They're often together, but they are not the same. And as the shepherds sometimes divide the sheep from the goats, so on the great day of judgment, our king will divide us. We may all look the same, but some are bound for life and some for death. On that day of the great separation, Christ our King will say to those on the right, Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But he will say to those on the left a very different message. Depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Suddenly, we find there is no fence to sit on. There's no middle ground. We are either the saved or the lost. This is a very sobering thought, isn't it? 
That means people we know, people we love. Some go to life and some go to death. Are you waiting to tell your parents, your children, your friends, your colleagues, everyone who will listen about your faith in Jesus Christ? Judgment is final. Let's move on and look again at how it will be on that day. This third time, we will hear our citation called as it really is. When a person receives a medal of honor, for example, for courageous military service, there is usually a brief citation giving the reason for the award. And when Jesus speaks to those described here as righteous, he reveals that they are being recognized for their services to the poor. But he says it in a rather strange way. I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. And the righteous, they will respond in astonishment. No, we didn't. We never saw you hungry and fed you, and so on. To which Jesus will reply, without realizing it, you actually did. Truly, I tell you, as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. The service given to the poor by the righteous has been unselfconscious, compassionate, in a way almost naive and innocent. They were unaware that anybody, let alone Jesus, was watching. It just flowed naturally out of their Christian discipleship. They were supplying the needs of those whom Jesus had always gone out of his way to identify with. And one day, our king will come in glory and acknowledge his followers for the genuineness of their faith in him and their love for others. Whereas for others, no excuses will carry any weight. We didn't know, Lord, they will say. But he will reply, Truly, I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Because members of his family were needy in a variety of ways, and they didn't lift a finger. This is not a passage I feel very comfortable to read. I'm grateful our holy God also loves us and is merciful. So on this judgment day, we will see Jesus as he really is, what our destiny really is, and what our award really is. Now, there are a couple things which I think need clarification. First, you may ask, well, how then are we saved? Is it by faith in Jesus Christ, or are we saved by works, like here, by serving the poor? When we search the New Testament, we discover it only has one answer, 
We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. However good and caring a person we are, our goodness will always fall short. And only Jesus' sacrifice on the cross can see us through. Salvation is a gift of God through Jesus Christ. Sheer, undeserved grace. But, sometimes, the New Testament reminds us what it means to live the Christian life. We can't thank God for his grace, take a sigh of relief, and then take a nap until his salvation is revealed on the last day. We are to be judged not just by avoiding doing wrong things, we will be judged by our failure to do right things. So are we saved by faith or by works? The answer is, we should not separate the two. Faith is only real when it leads to good works. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says it clearly. For by grace you have been saved through faith for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. And it is God's grace that enables us to authentically extend ourselves in love and bless others with good works. Now for the other thing which needs clarification. When we look at the key verse, verse 40, it says, Truly I tell you, as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Obviously, the critical question appears to be, who are the members of my family? Who are these people whom we're meant to be helping? Are they disciples of Christ, those within the Christian family? Or are Jesus' family members the poor in general? Those described in the Old Testament lesson, the lost, the strayed, the injured, and the weak. This is a question over which Christians do not agree. But whatever Jesus did mean when he said the words, members of my family, it doesn't really matter. Remember, it is difficult for us to distinguish a sheep from a goat. They can look alike and they hang out together. I like what Tim Chester has to say in his book, Good News to the Poor. His personal view is that the words members of my family are a reference to the Christian community. And yet he begins the very next sentence. But our love is not to be confined to fellow Christians. And surely he is right. We need only ask ourselves the question posed by Jesus, who is my neighbor? And then read his story of the Good Samaritan to know there are no boundaries to our works of compassion. Each of us must work out his own response to this very moving and compelling teaching teaching of Jesus. At first sight, it may seem straightforward, but actually it is not easy. We may feel we have compassion fatigue, requests from too many quarters, or we may feel that we have compassion confusion. For example, if we do give to someone who's begging on the streets, is it actually helping or hindering? Will our donations destined for faraway places like Afghanistan reach those in need? 
Or how can we respond when we have enough needs to handle within our own family? Or when we are personally at the limits of our personal endurance? So in some ways, it is exhausting, complicated, and difficult to work out our response. But on the evidence of this passage of Jesus' return, we know we must fall on our knees and ask, Lord, what do you want me to do for those who are on the margins, the forgotten people, those who are missing the essentials for survival, those who have no reason to believe that anybody cares for them? We know that Jesus deliberately stood in the shoes of the poor and oppressed in society, and so should we. I think it is helpful to ask ourselves this question. How would your behavior change if you treated each person in your life as if he or she were Jesus? There's an inspiring story of St. Martin, who as a youth wanted to be a monk, but he was forced by his father to join the army. One day, During a very harsh winter, he was marching with his fellow soldiers. And he met a poor man, almost naked, trembling and just shaking from cold and begging for alms. Martin had nothing to give him but the clothes on his back. So drawing his sword, he cut his cloak in two pieces, gave one to the beggar, and wrapped himself in the other half. Some of the bystanders laughed at him, while others were ashamed not to have helped the poor man. In the following night, St. Martin saw in his sleep Jesus dressed in the half of the garment which he had given away. He was asked to look at it closely and to see if he recognized it. Then he heard Jesus say to a troop of angels who surrounded him, Martin, who is not yet baptized, has clothed me with his garment. Jesus will come again, and all the world will acknowledge Christ our King. All emotions will be heightened. There will be the laughter and pleasure of the marriage feast, and the misery of being cast out from so much happiness. There will be the joy of our master into which we have the privilege of entering and the outer darkness into which the slothful servant is cast. There will be the glorious kingdom of eternal life and the fire of eternal punishment. What set of experiences awaits you? Christ offers to us what the poor really need a challenge for us to serve them, and a gospel for us to share with them. So let us therefore live for that day when what is now hidden is brought to light and we meet Jesus face to face. Please pray with me. Father, thank you that that this world is not just going to fizzle out but will end in trumpets and a shout of triumph as Christ reveals to the world who he truly is. 
Forgive us when our hearts are hard. Please give us your grace to recognize you in those in need and serve them. We ask that we may be ready when Christ comes again to meet our Master and our King. In his name, amen.